Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The passengers on this Boris bus are now leaping for their lives. I speak as a bitterly disillusioned fan. He blew a huge amount of money. He authorised a rise in national insurance, which broke a key manifesto promise. We have to be mindful as journalists that we don't seem woefully out of touch with a still significant body of public opinion who doesn't like this kind of political psychodrama. We've been a Cinderella service. We were not A&E, we were not 18 weeks, we were not cancer targets, we were maternity. And often trust boards took their eye off the ball. One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's a bit of a slow Newsweek co-pilot, so there's not much to talk about. But seeing as we're here on the rocket and ready to roll, let's have a chat about the resignation of the Health Secretary, the Chancellor and a couple of dozen other members of the government. (laughs) The tone you set as leader and the values you represent reflect on your colleagues, your party and ultimately the country. You've lost my confidence, wrote Sajid Javid. In a resignation letter released just ahead of the Tea Time news bulletins on Tuesday, the day before Prime Minister's questions, of course. The public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously, wrote Rishi Sunak in a letter released within minutes of Javid's, again for maximum impact. I believe these standards are worth fighting for, continued the now former Chancellor, and that's why I'm resigning. Here we have co-pilot, a health secretary resigning with NHS waiting lists at record levels. The Chancellor's bowing out amidst the worst cost of living crisis in 40 years. These two men, both multi-millionaires and insulated from financial worries, will, along with much of the rest of the political and media class, be accused of being out of touch with the real world, playing political parlour games. Others, though, will say it's about time because, whether they typically vote Tory, Labour or otherwise, Remainers or Brexiteers, they just want Boris Johnson gone. Could he cling on co-pilot against your will, defying so many of his previous supporters who've now fallen out of love with Boris? After all, a little local difficulty is how then-Tory Prime Minister Harold Macmillan described the resignation of his Chancellor in 1958. And Macmillan remained in office for another five years. I think this one will be lucky to see out five days, honey, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's such a fast-moving news story that I hesitate to say anything because just before we started recording, there had been 31 total resignations from the government this week by ministers and others on the payroll, and more may indeed be happening, co-pilot, as Planet Normal is recorded. There's absolutely 
no saving him now, I'm afraid. He's driving an increasingly empty bus, a bit like Sandra Bullock in Speed, with her foot on the floor. <laughs> if he slows down, the bus will blow up. And we saw him in the Commons at PMQs. I mean, look, the guy's got chutzpah, hasn't he? What must it feel like to go out there and not only be openly mocked by the side opposite, but to have people on the benches behind you, your actual own MPs really ripping into you. And our colleague Camilla Tomini, who was watching, said that one of the Tory MPs, when Boris said, I've got a plan, this man mouthed bollocks and made a throat-slitting gesture with his hand. But yes, the passengers on this Boris bus are now leaping for their lives Five more ministers resigned today, lunchtime, including the excellent Kemi Badenoch and Lee Rowley, a Red Wall MP. We met recently, didn't we, co-pilot? They're saying it's become increasingly clear the government cannot function, given the issues that have come to light. And of course, as you said, most devastatingly, the killer blow really dealt by Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, two of the great offices of state vacated and hurriedly filled in a move that Keir Starmer, who had an unusually good commons performance. I mean, Keir normally, given an open goal, can miss it every time. Hit the corner flag. Yeah, hit the corner flag. But even he (laughs) said the charge of the lightweight brigade of people being shoveled in hastily to fill these great officers' speech. And Sajid Javid gave a very, very powerful, if brutal, speech in the commons talking about treading the tightrope between loyalty and and integrity has become impossible in recent months. He said that as health secretary, he'd repeatedly given the PM the benefit of the doubt over Partygate. He'd actually had assurances from the very top that there were no parties in number 10 and no rules were broken. Now, I think what has really precipitated this, the final coup de grace, Liam, really, has been that Boris is a pathological liar. Let's not beat about the bush. I mean, he does it so charmingly, but he sort of just sends up a load of flack, doesn't he? He's like one of these clowns who sends up sort of lots of pumps confetti out of a pump. And it can be all quite charming and done with a big sort of cheeky smile. But what's happened in the last few days since the Chris Pincher scandal broke was that Downing Street has been expecting ministers to go out and lie on the radio and on television. And people like Dominic Raab, Deputy Prime Minister, Therese Coffey, Work and Pensions Minister, have found themselves in a studio giving this I am not specifically aware that the Prime Minister was made aware of specific allegations specifically. It's absolute (laughs) arrant nonsense. So there they sit, these ministers, defending the Prime Minister, only to be told in the middle of their broadcast that not only are various people coming forward to contradict the story, number 10 is changing the story that it's given them. So it's absolutely mental and it's got to stop. It's interesting, co-pilot, I'm recording this now with you having just come off air on GB News. I did a a long programme taking in Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday lunchtime and then for several hours afterwards talking to politicians, gauging opinion. I've got many, many, many emails that were sent to me while I was doing that programme. And I have to say, while, of course, it was very difficult to get anyone on the programme anyone from Westminster to defend the Prime Minister, 
a lot of the emails were really quite upset and angry. Mm. And they were angry because they feel, and it was over half the emails I received, that Boris Johnson has been hounded out of office. Now, that may be the Telegraph audience might be slightly different, but I do think there's some crossover here. And of course, for many, many people in the political media class, it's the end of Boris. And you know, to all intents and purposes, of course, it's the end. He could easily be gone by the time Planet Normal goes to air, if you like, by the time it's released mm. on Thursday morning. But I'll just read out some of them to you. Barry said, Boris has to stay and do the job people voted him to do. His ministers should have more guts and stand by their boss. They won't be forgiven by the public and will spend years in the wilderness. Alexandra emailed me, mark my words, the Conservatives will get absolutely hammered in the next general election and won't be re-elected for a long time if they ditch Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson himself said in the Commons, they want me out as they know otherwise we would deliver our mandate and we would win the next general election. The job of the PM handed a colossal political mandate is to keep going and that's what I intend to do. Now, to you and I, up close to the political process, even though we're very much not part of the Westminster village, but we do follow politics closely, Boris Johnson sounds delusional there. But for a lot of people out there in the country watching on, worried about the cost of living crisis, worried about the highest waiting lists in a generation at the NHS, worried about the fact that their kids can't, let alone buy, even rent some accommodation to start a family and get on with their lives. A lot of this does look like posturing and political process. And of course, there's a really, really strong argument that he should go now, given everything that's happened. But we have to be mindful, and I'm not sitting here defending the guy, but we have to be mindful as journalists and a political media class that we don't seem woefully out of touch with a still significant body of public opinion who doesn't like this kind of political psychodrama and these parliamentary antics. I know that, Liam. I hear what you're saying, but I'm not in the Westminster village. That's the whole point. I have been calling these things right for years. And why have I been calling them right for years when political correspondents invariably get them wrong? And that's because I listen to my readers and to our listeners and what my readers at The Telegraph, and I tell you, you know how many hundreds and hundreds of emails I get. Sure. Overwhelmingly, they've been saying, we are lifelong Tories and mm. we voted for him with a full heart in 2019 and we will not vote Conservative again as long as that man is the Prime Minister. Now, that is the overwhelming number of things coming in to my post bag. And just to talk about this idea that he's the person to take this mandate forward. So the day that you're all listening to Planet Normal, it's 938 days since Boris Johnson won that astonishing 2019 general election with the highest majority since the 1980s. Boris has to stay in his job until the 3rd of August to serve longer than Theresa May did. Gordon Brown was Prime Minister for 1,049 days. And these things, they do preoccupy Prime Minister's Liam. Boris said to a colleague that it will take a flamethrower to get him out. And let's face it, it's <laughs> an enormous... Yeah, I know. I mean, I think David Davis said he'd got his finger sort of jammed in the windowsills. But it's an enormous humiliation, <laughs> isn't it? Having yeah. won 
such a historic majority to go so soon. I think my favourite comment of the week was at the MP who said that what's astonishing is that Boris Johnson will finally be taken down by a sex scandal in which he isn't personally involved. But let me just say my piece now about this, because I speak not as someone who's been a critic at all, on the contrary. You haven't been, absolutely. And the great sadness, Liam, for me and for millions of former Boris supporters like me, is that we hoped that by voting for him in our millions that he would form a great reforming Conservative government. He would tackle all the issues he'd so brilliantly articulated in his wonderful Telegraph columns. And what has he done? What's been done? Okay, You can say he saved the UK from a Corbyn premiership, although personally I think other Tory leaders would have managed that because the public had decided that Corbyn was a danger. Boris barraged Brexit through a Remainer parliament. Immense kudos for that. I think he and Dominic Cummings made a formidable team and they did pretty much get Brexit done. He had, as we've discussed many times on Planet Normal, had a very patchy pandemic going along with the lockdowns far too long, although he did commission Kate Bingham to seek out vaccines early, and that did come up trumps. But what else, co-pilot? His wife put up eye-wateringly expensive gold Casbar wallpaper. He's stuck stubbornly by a net zero target, which is going to impoverish millions of ordinary families. He's had the huge good fortune to be up against an incredibly drab Labour leader. Public hasn't warmed to Keir Starmer at all. So there was everything to play for, Liam. But as various MPs and ministers have said to us in the last week or so, there isn't a plan. What was the Boris vision for the country? How was he hoping to make lives better? What does levelling up mean? How are we going to seize the opportunities of Brexit? And nothing, nothing happened. I speak as a bitterly disillusioned fan. He blew a huge amount of money. He authorised a rise in national insurance, which broke a key manifesto promise to help the NHS and social care catch up after the pandemic. But that $12 as we know, wasn't attached to any programme of reform, hugely needed reform of the NHS, no sign of that at all. And I have to say, Liam, I think that Boris Johnson did much of that to buy popularity and deflect criticism. He's weak. Boris, you should have stuck to the column like the rest of us. Many, many people across the country will wholeheartedly agree with you, Alison. And I thought Lord Frost put his finger on it in his Telegraph column on Wednesday. Yes. When he called a lot of the government's policies, I mean, absolutely devastating phrase, (laughs) (laughs) content-free. Yes. It's so odd to me that there's nobody in and around Downing Street. We say it almost every other week or so, don't we? There's no one in and around Downing Street who's really got their head around policy Or if they are there, they're locked in the cellar and never allowed to see the light of day. What a waste of an 80-seat majority and an awful lot of goodwill. And also, what a waste for our democracy. Because the incredible thing about the, the breaking of the Red Wall, the fact that so many people across the country, particularly in the North and Midlands, voted Conservative for the first time, Mm. 
it could have lubricated our democracy for the next generation. It could have detribalized British politics yeah. away from the red people and the blue people. It could have led to a much more fluid, a much more a decent, if you like, democracy and a series of elections in the UK over the coming generation. But you get the sense now that having broken through that red wall, having empowered people in parts of the country where they just voted Labour tribally to think about other offerings in the political marketplace, you get the sense now that those people, many of them will feel, you know, duped and disillusioned and let down. And again, because of the way this is being done, because of the antics at Westminster, because so many people are looking on at a time of real financial concern and indeed security issues, you know, sirens going off in Kiev, air raid sirens, as we speak, given that the UK, surely the timing isn't a coincidence, is pretty much distracted. The currency markets, the pound losing ground, partly related to other global issues, but also linked to our politics. And that, of course, will fuel further inflation because our imports then become more expensive. His defenders would say the combination of lockdown and war in Ukraine and ongoing Brexit wrangling made it very hard for him to get any kind of, you know, domestic economic and reform agenda off the ground. But you have to deal with events as they are. There's no counterfactuals in politics, really. And it's almost impossible for anyone now to conclude, even with the best will in the world, that this hasn't been a really, really disappointing premiership that, as you rightly say, Alison, looks as if it could come to the end at any moment. Well, it's really odd, Liam, isn't it, looking at the economy? So you talked about what they've achieved. So this week, more than 2 million low-income workers will no longer pay, you know, from this week, they won't be paying national insurance because the threshold for payments was raised by Rishi Sunak from just over 9,500 to 12,500. So that is some positive news, but such is the depth of this crisis, such is the sort of restoration. It's like sort of Congreve way of the world, isn't it? You know, where Fi, Lord Pincher, has been puddling his hands with the merry swains of the Carlton Club. So you've got all this absolute ludicrous stuff going on. And then, as you say, we've got this desperately serious crisis where, you know, people can't afford to fill up their cars. I mean, what do we think is going to happen? Enormous numbers of rumours swirling around. I've been in touch with Sir Graham Brady, our lovely head of the 1922 committee, former Planet Normal guest. Next week, anyway, was going to see elections to the 1922 with Boris opponents like Steve Baker and Andrew Bridgen seeking a place on the com- committee simply in order to change the rules and have another vote of confidence. And that's, I think, Liam, that could very rapidly get extremely bleak for Boris. He did win the vote of no confidence on the 6th of June, but 148 MPs voted against him. I mean, it's a it's a hell of a lot more than that now to go. So for him to go into another vote of confidence would be potentially devastating and humiliating. Is it going to be the men in grey suits with the revolver and the glass of whiskey? What do you think? The men and women in grey suits these days, oh. and they're not always grey. <laughs> I use that phrase with the Henna Davison, <laughs> the Tory MP for Bishop Auckland, on my GB News show, and she was sitting there literally wearing fuchsia. And she said, grey, grey. 
parliamentary recess is meant to be on the 21st of July. It may now be a question of the whips bringing that recess forward in order to try and seal off the problems and send everybody on their merry way for their summer holidays before some kind of coup happens. There's really fevered talk in Westminster as we're speaking, and I should just report it in case it does happen before Planet Normal is published and goes to air. There's talk of votes of no confidence being sparked by the opposition in cahoots with Tories who want to get Boris out. Gosh, wow. There's talks of all kinds of double tickets being put forward, uh, testing out with the electorate, mate, that is Tory activists who would decide who the next Conservative leader is. There's talks of leadership contests happening almost kind of illegally, if you like, before there's even a vacancy in order to rub the Prime Minister's nose in it. There's talk that can the Prime Minister, has he even got enough MPs to fill up his government, you know, including MPs that have only been in the House of Commons since 2019? Mm. I mean, there was a cheeky question at PMQs from a Labour member saying, given that the government doesn't like strikes and walkouts, is the government going to pass legislation <laughs> to stop more walkouts from the government itself? And Boris Johnson said there's a ready supply of skilled labour within the higher uh, echelons of the Conservative Party. Well, there isn't, mate, anyway, and people are falling like flies around you and determined to humiliate you, these rolling resignations. Kemi Badnock, who we've talked about many times, a constituency MP in Saffron Warden, often talked of as a future leader. She resigned en masse with five other ministers in a sort of single letter. The strength of feeling there must be in order to have the guts to do that. But again, I, I put it to you, this is happening at a time when the economy is deteriorating. It deteriorated materially over the last month. That was the verdicts of the Bank of England earlier this week when it issued a new report. So it strikes me that we could have in this summer and into the autumn that summer of discontent that we've talked about with falling business confidence, with curtailing of economic growth, even a recession and rising prices. And at this point, even though everybody wants to decapitate Boris Johnson, I really do wonder who would want the main job, who would want to take the crown at this point when there is still a lot of bad news in the system waiting to come out. Everybody wants to be the next but one Conservative leader at the top of the Conservative Party because whoever does take the mantle, if indeed Boris Johnson falls on his sword or is pushed out by <laughs> pushed his onto his sword, yes. Yeah, by his parliamentary colleagues, who is going to want the job right now? Because it's going to be a very, very poison chalice, if you like. Of course, it's a great honour to be the Prime Minister, but under such difficult circumstances, everybody will be saying, you know, after you, dear. No, after you. I don't agree with you, Liam. I think, you know, there's always going to be enough people who want the top job. So I thought Javid's speech where he said, I didn't go into politics to be someone. I went into politics to do something very major nudge at the present incumbent. Oh, look, there's going to be enough of them. As soon as he's wounded, mortally wounded, at the moment, he's like one of those bulls, isn't he, in the arena with all the, what do they call them, the <laughs> arrows that they put in their backs of the bull? That's that's what he's like, still charging around. There are going to be enough people. I just want to go on the record saying now it's got to be a Brexiteer. Michael Heseltine, old sourpuss extraordinaire, said today, ha ha, if Boris goes, Brexit goes. No, we're not going to allow that to happen. Personally, I'm going to be supporting, cheerleading, 
for candidates for the leadership who are Brexiteers. We are not going to allow the sort of Jeremy Hunt contingent to be wheedled in. And they play dirty, Liam. I was talking to Andrea Ledsom, who I interviewed prior to the Theresa May leadership contest, and there was a real job done on her. I mean, these guys, they are they are not nice, are they? They'll choose their candidate and they'll do whatever it takes to get their man in the job. Well, I'm going to be hoping it's a woman come in and clear up the mess made by all these wretched, reckless boys. And I think there will be people who'll come forward. It's the timing of it, isn't it? As you say, if he can get to the recess, I don't think they'll let him go to the recess. I think you're right. The timing now is key. There may be a surge of activity. It could happen before parliamentary recess, even if that recess is brought forward in some way. It strikes me, though, that until this is resolved, the British government, in terms of policymaking, is going to come pretty much to a standstill. And I say again, a lot of people across the country will be outraged at that happening. I said earlier that I thought that the Cummings-Boris partnership was which pushed through Brexit, got through that. Remember that extraordinary logjam, Liam? Remember the sense of elation we felt when, when he won and got it over the line? And I think Cummings going defeated by Carrie and her sort of pushing a liberal green ideology onto I think onto her husband, who sort of, we won't go into the specific details, but who's a bit of a soft touch for some of these things. And I think when history is written, I think they'll look back and they'll see the triumph of Carrie as being the moment it all went wrong. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine, As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Our guest this week, Liam, is a woman I admire hugely, a fellow Welsh woman. Donna Ockenden is a midwife with over 30 years national and international experience from 2013 to 2017. She was clinical director of midwifery at the London Strategic Clinical Network NHS England. And in 2016, Donna was commissioned by the then Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, to chair an independent review into what seemed to be failing maternity services at Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust. Now, we've discussed this on the podcast, Liam. The Ockenden Review was published in March this year and caused an absolute uproar. Donna Ockenden and her team had found a string of repeated failures between 2000 and 2019, including at least 304 cases 
where there was avoidable harm. Babies either died or were left seriously disabled owing to catastrophic mistakes. Now, Donna herself went above and beyond what the job required. She paid tribute to Rhiannon Davis and Richard Stanton, who lost their baby daughter, Kate, and to Kaylee and Colin Griffiths, who lost their daughter, Pippa, seven years later. Those two mothers realised they had this terrible tragedy in common. They started researching in the local papers and discovered the names of 23 other babies who had died with the same pattern of mistakes. So I began by asking Donna Ockenden how it was possible in a medically advanced country like the UK for such appalling errors to go on for almost 20 years. So what my independent team found is that this was a trust that, first of all, did not listen to families. They often didn't investigate when things went wrong. And the combination of that, not listening to families, not investigating, meant that there was a lack of learning. And of course, that then allowed repeated occurrences of tragedies. My review started with 23 families in which I was told there were potentially serious concerns. And of course, we found that out to be absolutely the case. But again, we go back to this lack of listening to families. In 2009, Rhiannon and Richard have described to me how they just hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. Fast forward seven years to the death of Pippa Griffiths and Kaylee and Colin encountered that similar brick wall. And, and Rhiannon tells the story of being about to hang up her boots, so to speak. It had taken us seven years to start to understand the truth of what happened to Kate. And then out of the blue, she was contacted by Kaylee Griffiths. And then, you know, the story of the original 23 begins. But that shouldn't have been the case, Donna, should it? So I read that a questionnaire was offered to past and present staff at the Trust and 65% of those surveyed said they'd either witnessed bullying or had been the target of bullying. And some staff said that they had been discouraged by managers from cooperating with the report. Now, it just does seem there is this secretive culture within that trust, which threatens to punish good people who draw attention to problems and errors. Is that fair? Unfortunately, yes. In our final published report, which I'm sure you've seen, we were only able to include testimonies or findings from 98 members of staff because in the weeks leading up to the finalising of the report, 11 members of staff dropped out. They contacted us to say we don't want to be included. And the majority of staff telling us that were because they were frightened. What then happened is that staff continued to contact me right up to the day of publication and after publication to say we're still struggling with being heard, we're still struggling to speak out. And of course, quite rightly, I escalated that to the Chief Executive of the Trust and to NHS England because I can't unknow what I know. You know, once I've been told that staff have got concerns, I have a duty to bring those concerns out into the light, which is what I did. There are many devastating things in your report, Donna, but the line that jumped out at me was some women, some mothers were blamed even for their own deaths. Now that made me cry. I'm going to cry again now on Planet Normal when Liam and I were discussing the report. Did you get upset as you were digging into these 
harrowing stories? Did they make you angry? Yes, to both. We offered the families, you know, everything from a listening ear service to fairly extensive psychological support, which is ongoing and will be ongoing until next year. So my team also, including myself, were able to access professional supervision because what you find is, is unless you access that kind of support yourself, there is a limit to the grief and the anger sometimes that you know, any human being can take on board. So despite that, and I'm not ashamed to say it, there were days when I would go back to my hotel room, sit on my bed and cry. When I met um, the families where mothers had lost their lives, I'd often meet their sisters, their parents, their partners, their brothers. And hearing those stories, hearing the enormous chasms that the deaths of these young women had left... Is something that will remain with me for the rest of my days. Donna, you're a senior midwife with more than 30 years' experience, both in this country and internationally. Between 2006 and 2014, you were the chair of the England Royal College of Midwives. Now, around the time of your report, the head of the Royal College of Midwives apologised for the college's part in promoting so-called normal births that had contributed to the deaths of mothers and babies. Jill Walton said... Some midwives had turned legitimate efforts to improve maternity care into a dangerous ideology that had gone too far. Was that risky, normal births ideology gone too far, responsible for some of the deaths of babies and mums in Shrewsbury and Telford? So what we definitely saw were many, many cases where my doctors and midwives were absolutely unanimous that an earlier recourse to caesarean section would have led to better outcomes for mothers and babies. We also saw a multi-professional effort, so this is doctors and midwives, to minimise caesarean sections And we saw many cases, and you will know that baby Kate and Rhiannon Stanton-Davis were one of these, where women were encouraged to have their babies in remote midwifery-led units when actually the clinical signs were such that it was very, very clear they needed consultant-led care. So we found many examples of all of those that definitely led to much worse outcomes for mothers and babies than otherwise would have been the case. So coming on from that, by 2002, Shrewsbury and Telford had the lowest C-section rate in the country, for which it was actually praised by the Commons Health Select Committee. There were maternity units getting bad reports from the Clare Quality Commission, the NHS regulator, because their C-section stats were too high. Were women denied a C-section, women who may well have needed one because there was pressure in the NHS to reduce costs because C-sections are more expensive? Or was it down to that ideology we've discussed that vaginal delivery is always best? So I think that there were two issues going on. Certainly at that time, I was head of midwifery and a divisional director, women and children's division elsewhere in the country. And certainly every month we had a monthly performance review with our executive team. And one of the things that I was scrutinised on, I was asked about, I was challenged about, was my C-section rates. 
At the time, I was leading a service in a big unit where many of our women were very complex. And I was confident that our higher than average cesarean section rates were appropriate. And I always felt able with my obstetric colleagues to defend that. In Shrewsbury and Telford, I'm sure you've seen the report that was published at the time from the Select Committee. And one of the people working at the Trust very clearly says, we attract a certain kind of person who will promote low cesarean section rates. And once they realise what we do here, you know, those people will come and work for us. So it was a very deliberate attempt, I think, by the Trust to promote their low cesarean section rates but they weren't looking at the consequences of what came out of that push towards low C-section rates. Since your report was published with very clear views on this normal birth or denial of C-section, I saw an advertisement for one hospital trust which was advertising for um, midwives to come and practice normal birth. I drew attention to that in my Telegraph column and the advertisement was rapidly withdrawn. There was still some of this ideology, normal birth ideology, which was bedded down into the midwifery profession. So I'm very clear that that did happen at the Shrewsbury and Telford Trust. I've met so many mothers and their families. We mustn't forget their families, their partners, you know, their husbands, the siblings who've lost other siblings. So we must remember the whole family is affected when there is a tragedy associated with maternity care. I'm very clear that that did happen. And I think the strong message that needs to, to you know, resonate throughout maternity services is safe, appropriately staffed, with well-trained people delivering maternity care for the mothers and babies across our country. They deserve no less. You know, I was quite shocked because I hadn't really understood that there are thousands of MLUs, these midwife-led units, which say they have an emphasis on normal birth for, quote, uncomplicated, low-risk pregnancies. And many of these MLUs don't have an operating theatre or surgeons on the premises. We heard from one poor woman whose son now profoundly disabled. They've been in litigation for nine years and she had no idea that the MLU she went to give birth in, that the nearest operating theatre was miles away and it took the surgeon a very long time to reach her and her baby was damaged. So you've got these MLUs where a distressed baby can't be whipped out quickly. Do you have concerns about these MLUs which don't have this rapid access to C-sections? So I have worked in services, I have led services which have had both alongside MLU, so that'll be a midwifery-led unit adjacent to on the same floor as a labour ward. And also I have led a service where we did have these midwifery-led units, you know, in the community then. I think what is important is that mothers are given accurate information. I think that all trusts should work with their ambulance service so that if mothers are choosing to birth their babies at home or birth their babies in these units that are not close to, you know, obstetric and neonatal support and help, mothers need to be absolutely fully informed of what is available, what the transfer rates in labour are, 
And there does need to be an honest conversation that in some circumstances, the delay in transfer time may lead to a situation that is less favourable for mother or baby if one or other of them becomes critically unwell. So if I were to be given a preference, I would say I would support the further development of midwifery-led units as alongside the labour ward. But I think that If women are to continue to choose, and they absolutely have a right to choose, you know, birth outside hospital, then they need to be given the full suite of information in order to make those choices. Now, Donna, I want to come to this very important issue of staffing levels in maternity services. So Rosemary, our veteran midwife, says... When I first qualified, there would be 12 midwives on the delivery suite and four on each of the three wards for 4,500 babies delivered every year. By the time I retired in 2015, we were lucky if there were 10 to 12 midwives for the whole unit for 5,500 babies delivered. The women in our care had far more complications than many in previous generations. Women are getting pregnant now who never would have got pregnant 30 years ago. Many are much older mums. This adds to the risks involved and the workload. Donna Ockenden, are staffing levels in British maternity units unsafe? So I think what I can absolutely say is, is Rosemary summed up really clearly um, a situation that uh, many heads of directors of midwifery would be very familiar with. Maternity services have been understaffed, becoming gradually more understaffed over many years. So now is the time that everyone concerned with um, in and around maternity services from government downwards must, must put every possible ounce of energy and the required funding into properly staffing our maternity services. Donna, you've got this wonderful, calm, mellifluous delivery. I would have loved to have had you as my midwife, although I did have the most marvellous midwife. And I think any woman listening will remember the tenderness and the care that they received, won't they? from a good midwife. But listening to you, it just makes me very angry. I'm angry because I interviewed David Cameron. David Cameron, before he was elected, said, we're going to make midwives' lives a lot easier. We're going to recruit 3,000 more midwives. I interviewed him a couple of years later and I said, Prime Minister, where are the 3,000 extra midwives? And he blushed on that. He absolutely blushed to the roots of his being pregnant mothers and families have been let down by successive governments who haven't recruited enough midwives to make maternity services safe? Yes or no? I think you're correct. I think that my hope for our report, which has set out a blueprint, a roadmap, a really clear direction of travel for maternity services across England. Um, we are very, very, very clear. We couldn't be more clear, if we can underline that as well, please, um, that maternity services need funding, they need workforce. And we're now in a position where it's going to take us a number of years to grow that workforce. The Royal College of Midwives and the Royal College of Obsangaini have been really clear about the workforce crisis that has faced our maternity services. I suppose one of the positive things that comes out of the Shrewsbury and Telford review, and I know the Shropshire families are so pleased, 
is that everyone's attention from the very top of government downwards now is on maternity services. We've got that really bright spotlight and that attention is not going away. But shockingly, it does remain, Donna, that the OECD has ranked the UK 27th out of 38 for infant mortality and 20th for maternal mortality. These are pretty dreadful figures for a wealthy country like ours. Donna, I'm really worried about it. Since I read your report, I've been stirred into doing a lot of digging and research as a journalist. I'm very concerned, all right? I put it very strongly. It's upsetting me that there are women and babies who are at risk, not because we don't have wonderful dedicated staff, but because there are these various concerns. What do you think's gone wrong? And now, if there were three things that you could wave your wonderful midwife's magic wand, what would you do tomorrow to make it better? So actually, what I would do today is I would ensure that we had the investment we needed guaranteed to provide the right staffing and the right training. And I'd ensure that families were always listened to. And as a part of that, because I'm only allowed three, but I'm going to count that into my third one as well, staff on the ground who often have so many of the solutions to the difficulties we face, staff on the ground are listened to and enabled always to speak out So that's what I would do to solve the situation. What I would say has led to the situation we're in, and I'm pretty sure that this is a position that is held also by the Royal College of Midwives and the Royal College of Obs and Gynae, is we've been a Cinderella service. We all know the picture of Cinderella in our ragged clothes. And we've been that service. We were not A&E. We were not 18 weeks. We were not cancer targets. We were maternity And often trust boards took their eye off the ball. They focused on what they saw with the high risk services and maternity kind of got swept to one side. And as I think the lady was called Rosemary, your veteran midwife, as you described her, you know, she saw throughout her career staffing levels deteriorate. And my report, you know, the really hard work of my team, the dedication of the Shropshire families, I think has laid that bare We've got a way forward, but we've got to keep marching on that journey towards maternity safety for all. Have babies died because maternity was a Cinderella service? I think that in Shrewsbury and Telford, we know that there's been significant harm to mothers and babies. Part of that reason would have been staffing and investment. Part of that reason would have been the push towards normal birth, vaginal birth, when cesarean sections were absolutely clearly indicated. It's multifaceted, but I have met hundreds of families whose lives have been turned upside down by the maternity tragedy that overtook them. Like me, you are a proud Welsh woman. I have to say my heart swells. I feel so proud of you for fighting for families, but for specifically for pregnant women. I feel overwhelmingly grateful and I speak on behalf of Planet Normal listeners to thank you, Donna Ockenden, for doing so much in your power to put that right. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me too. I'm so grateful. And again, on behalf of my team, 
my wonderful independent team and all the families in Shropshire, can I also thank you, thank all the journalists who have helped to get these issues out there, to get them discussed and to give them the airtime that they need. Thank you. That's an important interview, Alison, a powerful interview, a landmark interview about really an area of public policy. It's harder to think of a more important one than what happens when life is created, when someone is born into this world. And we should thank our producer, Zoe Hitch, who helped us to land that interview for Planet Normal. Yes, Zoe did a lot and got Donna to come on and talk to us. She does have a very gentle kindly, thoughtful delivery, Liam, but I don't think there's any denying how devastating are the things that she's saying. There are hundreds of children who are not alive today because of a combination of understaffing, ideology, which precluded C-sections being given promptly to get a baby out, an ideology that vaginal delivery was best. So there's been this combination of lethal factors and all wound up in the fact that it was, as Donna said, a Cinderella service, all right? One of the most important things in our medical system, bringing babies safely into the world. Hardly anything more important, you'd think. But no, it was a Cinderella service. And I have to say, Liam, when my feminist hackles rise... Is anything to do with professions where women are most of the employees, are people are poorly rewarded, whether it's primary school teachers or midwifery, when women are the major cohort of employees, those jobs get treated like Okay, so there are children who've died. And I think that the fact when I was talking to Donna, she was in Shrewsbury and Telford, still giving care to support the families. And I think she described so well, didn't she, the burden of sorrow she and the team carry because when the baby or a mum is lost, it reverberates, the sorrow reverberates through the family. And can I just say one final thing? I'm not going to rest until we or the Telegraph have looked into these remote midwifery-led units where normal births are encouraged and they are miles from surgical intervention. And what Donna, I think, was saying to us is that women need to be told that they are allowed, of course, to make the choice to go to a midwifery-led unit, but she would prefer to see MLUs attached to hospitals where if the labour goes wrong, then help is at hand to save the baby and the mum. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful messages coming. We absolutely love reading them. We've got so many fascinating and topical ones this week from you, our Planet Normal listeners. This rather chimes in with what you were saying earlier, co-pilot. This is from Marcus. Boris, out of the country meeting with other world leaders on matters of major importance. Some hoobity gets drunk. Luckily, some grown-ups are in the vicinity and persuade him to immediately resign. The media gets the story and immediately links 
Boris to the events, even though he was out of the country. Gotcha questions get thrown at number 10, where the PR machine automatically engages the protect Boris position. It spins answers to gotcha questions without having direct access to Boris, who is doing his proper job, with the result that there is inevitable confusion as to who knew what, when and why. Cue all the usual suspects accusing Boris of lying when he personally has not yet actually said anything. I am not a blinkered Boris Johnson supporter, but I am heartily sick of the constant efforts by hundreds of journalists to undermine anything and everything he says or does. Now, Liam, just to say that's from Marcus on the Telegraph website, representing certainly a cross-section of opinion that you found as well, haven't you, from your emails? I have indeed, and we are at Broadchurch here on Planet Normal. Planet Normal is all about promoting the idea that we can disagree gracefully because that's how progress is made here's an email from brendan hi liam during your interview with justin urquhart stewart last week justin of course is our financial analyst friend during your interview i noticed you touch upon the country's skill shortage it's been one of the great con jobs of the blair period and beyond that universities have grown exponentially on the back of cramming as many students as possible onto courses with little relevance to the workplace. There's a great deal of snobbery at play here, as vocational courses have less kudos at dinner parties than a degree in, say, event management. Parents must carry some of the blame. Do they never say to their little darlings that the general idea of education is to find gainful employment? Do they never point out the harsh realities that a glamorous-sounding degree loses its luster when you're unemployed and have no money? May I suggest the national curriculum devote some time to reality studies, says Brendan, in which our precious youth are able to learn a few basic facts of life, such as, one, money's important, two, there's no shame in getting your hands dirty, three, it's those with skills to sell who are getting onto the property market earlier and have the greater potential to grow their own business. As a country, we need to wake up. The future lies not in more nail bars or fast food outlets, but in skills, and that means a return of technical colleges, quality apprenticeships, and more importantly, the removal of the stigma associated with vocational skills. And yes, we are in a rerun of the 70s. I used to say then the country's going to the dogs. I'm saying it now too. Great podcast, Brendan. Liam, as you know, I wrote a column this week talking about the increasing pressure of trans ideology in schools with one particular case of a teacher who was given a list for parents' evening and was given the list of the names of the girls he was teaching and the list of their gender-neutral names that they'd adopted and a list of the parents who didn't know that their girls were now identifying as boys and were not allowed to be told. So I was indignant about this. And we've got various emails already in response to this. Scott says, as a teacher, I'm increasingly getting emails from the school's pastoral care saying that I must call pupils they or that the pupil identifies as a different gender. It's simply not credible that so many 12-year-old children are suddenly suffering from gender dysphoria. Schools are promoting this. And Biffle, not their real name, says, As a teacher, I can affirm that if you question this trans revolution, you get called into the head's office to explain yourself. The lunatics have certainly taken over the asylum, and it does make me question whether I should continue in a profession which allows kids to live out fantasies divorced from physical reality. We even had one lad in our school who says he's gay going out with another lad, quote unquote, who is actually a girl who announced she was a boy last year. 
A few years ago, that would have been called a heterosexual relationship. The kids' heads are spinning. The teaching profession has a lot to answer for, and on this issue, I am ashamed to be a part of it. Sadly, my kids need shoes and a roof, so I have to continue biting my lip and watching the lunacy unfold. We'll certainly come back to that topic, Liam. We certainly will, and it was a really powerful column by you, and the link to that column on trans issues and so-called top surgery, he says euphemistically, in quotes, is in the show notes of that episode. And here's a final one from me, Alison. It's from Nick. As one of your younger listeners, I'm 22, I very much enjoy hearing your weekly wisdom. It makes me feel even saner among the woke generation. The galactic break that is Planet Normal provides much-needed relief from the chaos that is NHS Logistics, the Green Conservatives, and the dreadful aforementioned wokeism that seems to haunt our lives daily. I've been listening to Planet Normal podcast for nearly a year now, and I just wanted to thank you both ever so much. And of course, all the Planet Normal team, here, here, for your excellent work. Here, here. On the topic of NHS managerial mayhem, I came across something on Reddit which drew whimsical parallels to the famous Ben quote Liam mentioned a few episodes ago. It read as follows. When I worked in the NHS, I had to take part in an investigation about a poo on the floor in a community hospital. <laughs> a patient had missed the bog, so it sat steaming on the floor. The nurse said, too busy, can't clean that up, get the cleaner. Cleaner said, can't touch that, it's biological waste. Went back to nurse, who said, find a healthcare assistant. Healthcare assistant said, can't do it either, haven't been signed off on the infection control policy. It escalated to sister, who said the student nurse should do it. Student nurse vomited and ran out crying. I was in the building at the time and heard all the fuss. I thought, FFS, use your imagination what that means, and cleaned it up myself. Got reported as I was just a manager and not clinical. Perhaps the poo in question should have been discharged back to the GP only to be re-referred to the same ward in six to 12 months' time, by which time a poo operations manager appointed by the head of Poo-R for said community hospital would have sorted the situation out. I thought I must share this with you both. Once again, I love hearing the podcast so much that I look forward to every Thursday. Many thanks, Nick. And on that bombshell, Alison, crikey. That's Planet Normal for another week. Email of the week, it's your turn. I think it's got to go to young Nick for being our 22-year-old listener to Planet Normal and telling such a funny story. Thank you so much, Nick. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and jolly well hope you do, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, breaking news, Halligan. Just as we're coming to the end of the podcast, I think Boris is still in that liaison committee you were talking about earlier. Is the greased piglet finally heading for the butcher's block? We're hearing that the chief whip, Chris Heaton-Harris, has told him to go. Michael Gove is alleged to have threatened to resign if Boris doesn't go and there is said to be a cabinet delegation awaiting the poor chap when he emerges from the brutal liaison committee. What say you, Halligan? Of course it's possible. The thing about the news business, it's things that are new, plural. But all we can do is record the situation as we see it on Wednesday early evening when we talk to each other to create Planet Normal. By Thursday morning, of course, when the podcast comes out, it may be to overtaken by events that we just do 
what we can. And talking of which, we should mention, Alison, shouldn't we, that we're taking a summer break from Planet Normal for the next two weeks. Probably a good thing. <laughs> so there will be no Planet Normal on Thursday the 14th and Thursday the 21st of July. We love recording for you each week, of course, but we're only human and everyone needs a rest. But we will be back, won't we, the week after that? We will. So don't fret. So as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view and... It really is mad at the moment. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. Cab for Boris Johnson, and it's goodbye (laughs) from him. 